Culture and Psychology with Tabana. A very warm hello to our Radio Bombdad listeners. Uh, this is uh, Saide Malik Afzali speaking. I am sitting with my friend and colleague, Dr. Alexandradi. And Dr. Rockers is not with us today. We um, actually continue our conversation. Uh, even though Dr. Andrade is not still feeling that good, I appreciate him and his commitment and responsibility to be here with me. So uh, Dr. Rockers, I just give the mic to you so you can talk to our listeners. Uh, Dr. Andrade, that's okay. We're thinking about Daniel. No, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. We're thinking about Daniel. We're thinking about Dr. Rockers. That's okay. Thank you, Dr. Malakavzali. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, I'm I'm glad we're here today talking about, uh, I think in, in, I feel like so many times we, we start with one topic and we can go so many different places. And I think today we've landed on the idea of identity and we'll probably do that during this conversation too. There's so many different ways we can go. Uh, identity and, and how we understand identity uh, can be explained, I think, from several different kind of lenses, if you will, um, even just off the top of my head from different, uh, one second here, excuse me, a little sick, so I'm coughing every now and then, don't want to do that to, uh, in the microphone. Mm-hmm. But in regards to identity, we can come across this from uh, different psychological theories, uh, how identity is developed. Um, there's racial identity development models that uh, make sense of the racial development and how we see that in our society, in our culture, um, you know, family within a family, what is our role, what is our identity, um, you know, uh, even just internally, the, our own view of a oneself, uh, it's something I talk with individuals about who've experienced like the gastric bypass or the get bite gastric sleeve and they're relearn they're they're getting acquainted with their body now that they've lost weight and so it's it's like strange to them they'll see themselves in pictures and they're like i know that's me but it doesn't feel like me and so our identity who we are those things that go into us uh, can come in from so many different perspectives different angles Uh, when i think of the word identity i i think of it's first and foremost how we see ourselves but then also to how we're seen by others and I think, uh, I think we also have a lot of different kind of roles within our life and that we bring different parts of ourself into those different roles. And so it's not that we're being inauthentic uh, in the sense of when I'm talking on the radio show, I'm going to be one way versus when I'm with family, I'm going to maybe be a different way. It's just a different part of my identity that I'm bringing to the forefront. And so I always think of identity as like a sphere, if you will. And there's maybe one side of it that's being seen, but we know that there's like a backside. There's another side to that that's maybe being seen in different contexts or different situations. And it's not that that one is more or less true. It's just that's the, the side that's kind of being uh, kind of most present in that moment. And so for me, I think as a psychologist and as a person, one of the most important things is being able to recognize our, our very complex and our very unique uh, identity and, and that kind of knowing that whole sphere, if you will, knowing all the sides of us and how we bring each of those sides both to ourselves as well as to others too. Right. Uh, along those lines, yeah, Saide, what do you think of when you hear the word like identity and self and things like that? Well, actually, my dissertation um, somehow was related to that. And I was uh, 
going back to uh, my dissertation when I was getting my doctoral degree, uh, I feel like, as you said, Alex, there's self-identity and there's group identity, there's collective identity. As a woman, there is women's ethnic group identity. I mean, there's so many ways that we can fit identity into that. Um, but also there's a cultural identity and there's race identity that we can get into that. Uh, so identity sometimes changes and self-concept sometimes changes depending on our environment, depending on um, our perspective changes. And as we are growing up, we have one identity that um, we have been raised with. And that identity is sort of family identity, the orientation that you pick from the family. And sense of identity is influenced by so many factors, right? Our relationship between, uh, for example, for me as an immigrant, the relationship between the two countries, um, the, the relationship and perspective of the group identity, for example, Iranian Americans and you know, so there's so many layers of identity that we can talk definitely, about. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And so, yeah, in, in thinking of, you know, some of the ones, like you said, and thinking about family, you know, there, and without getting too deep into the different theories, I mean, I think there are some kind of common roles that we see that kind of evolve in identity, such as the, you know, the kind of stereotypical qualities of like an older sibling versus like the baby of the family, uh, that could also vary if somebody's a single child versus coming from a large family. Yeah, it can definitely be different ways that a person presents uh, within their family as well. Uh, for example, when I work with, the, I work primarily with adults in my work, and a lot of times I explain to them the idea of regression. And what that is, is when we're around our family, say for the holidays, for example, when people don't maybe live near their family or maybe just major holidays or spending time with them, they'll find that when they go back home, they end up kind of taking on that identity of who they were before, sometimes even to their surprise. And this can be a bit of an issue when an individual has maybe had a, a kind of a, a challenging relationship with their family, or they've done a lot of work in their own individual life uh, to feel as though they can bring them whole, their whole selves to their family. And so sometimes they'll struggle because they'll feel like they end up regressing. Even that word, we tend to mean it in the way of going back. And so they can feel like they've kind of failed or they've kind of slipping back into those old habits and those old patterns. And so it's something I talk with patients about learning to be aware of our roles within our family and how those end up kind of almost automatically kind of playing out. Uh, I know for myself, uh, when I'm around my family, given that I'm the oldest, I tend to take on that, that role of like, okay, well, you know, are my brothers doing okay? You know, you know, somebody needs to, you know, be talked to, you know, like, Hey, like what's going on. Um, it's like, that's, that's my role within my family, talking to others, making sure they're good, kind of having those like heart to hearts. I mean, you know, I'm sure they do it with each other as well. Um, but it's just one of those things where I feel a sense of obligation in that way to my family. Um, also as the oldest, 
uh, and I think this is very common in a lot of cultures too, um, wanting to make sure that my parents are okay, making sure that health-wise they're, they're taking care of themselves, financially they're okay. And so I'll, I'll have, uh, I tend to find myself having more of those conversations with them uh, to ensure that, you know, their well-being. And so, again, I think we all have those roles and, you know, part of our identity and knowing how that kind of comes out within us. Right. And um, ethnicity even is a combination of identity and culture, right? So when you think about ethnicity, partly is the identity and partly is the culture. But as you mentioned, uh, as psychologists, you also, when you wear that hat, wherever you are, they turn to you and they ask you about something. Then at that time, you are using your psychologist's identity, right? I mean, we each, as you said, have different roles. And with different roles, we have different identities. Um, well, coming from collectivistic culture, our identity is very different than coming from individualist um, culture. That identity is completely different. And mindset is different based on that. Yeah, I always make that joke to family. I'm like, I, you know, like, oh, you know, you're a psychologist, uh, you know, you can help me. And uh, I jokingly tell pay, uh, family, go, yeah, family gets charged double. That's just, uh, you know, it's just too much work. Uh, no. and so, uh, yeah, obviously, you know, we can't see family for patients. But uh, yeah, it's just kind of a fun joke in that way. Um, because of all the dynamics that you can only imagine in sharing a, a family member being completely open and transparent with you. You know, I'm not taking that role on definitely in that way. So yeah. And then, yeah, in regards to, and I'm glad you mentioned the idea too of like gender too. I think that's definitely a, one of those big aspects of identity sometimes that we don't even realize, especially when we come to uh, like for myself, if I'm in a position of privilege as a male, having to be extra aware of that. And I know I've talked on the radio show before about recognizing, you know, male privilege, for example, you know, I can walk to my car at night without having to think that I need to maybe have my keys out and I need to be uh, prepared to, you know, defend myself and protect myself in that way. It's something that, you know, men aren't always uh, kind of taught or, or maybe told uh, in the way that women are. And so uh, I find, especially when it comes to things that we uh, are kind of privileged in and, and, you know, learning and recognizing our privilege, uh, it, it definitely plays into uh, our identity too and, and uh, the role that we have in the world. I think it's like, okay, well, I have that privilege and I could say, you know, I don't have to think about it or it's something that I can acknowledge and then say, well, and I want to give voice to that and I want to be kind of respectful of that, that one, that I have that, but then also two, that others don't have that as well. Yeah, and um, I want to go back to identity formation. Like uh, Erickson um, actually suggests that individuals progress through eight developmental stages during their lifespan. And each stage has distinguished psychological issues that impact individuals' personality at later stage. So for example, uh, if you look at the lifespan, uh, stage one is the early infancy, then we become a toddler, and in each part, our personality attributes to the changes that that life brings to us, like early childhood, middle childhood, adult, uh, when we get to adolescence, and then puberty, and then young adulthood, 
and then we get to middle adulthood and then older. So in each part, as we age, as we grow up, uh, we are actually building and developing our identity. So I just want to make sure we understand that identity is something that is developmental. Uh, we just go through the stages of lifespan and we change um, our identity sort of um, it's mixed with our experiences in life, it's mixed with our cultural understanding, integration with other cultures, all of that affects our identity. Yeah, one of the interesting things I remember learning this about the Erickson stages, it, it tends to go to only a certain age. I can't remember if you have it in front of you. Us. What was that? It just goes to 65 plus. Yeah. And so I, I remember uh, learning that later there was another stage that was at it because as Erickson got older, he learned that like, yeah, even at 65 plus, you're still evolving and growing and learning and changing. And so I, I just wanted to point that out maybe to some of our older listeners too. You know, it's it's one of those things where it's not like, okay, at any point, do I get to this firm sense of, okay, this is who I am and nothing is changing. We're always constantly changing and evolving. And that's something I've learned uh, through my work and working with individuals in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, interestingly enough, they would still have some of those struggles and difficulties that we would have at other points in our life, but then also had some very unique uh, uh, challenges and, and difficulties uh, and, and even, you know, positive things related to that particular uh, part of our life. So in regards to even identity that we're constantly growing, we're constantly evolving. Uh, I think sometimes we think at some point that we should know who we are in a sense of like, this is it. But I think it's, it's just that, as I mentioned earlier, I think of identity as like this, this sphere, if you will. And, and it's, it's something that becomes a little bit more cohesive over time but it should always be, <clears throat> excuse me, it should always be moldable to some degree. It should always be growing and evolving and changing versus becoming like stagnant. Uh, and so definitely something to uh, recognize that, uh, you know, if you don't feel like you know who you are yet, or you feel like you haven't got there, maybe it's not a, a, a firm ending necessarily. Maybe it's something that's always evolving and always growing in that way. Yeah, and for some people, happens um, those stages of growth uh, sooner or later. But it's really interesting when you think about the personality attribution. Uh, for example, the early childhood, it's um, uh, initiative versus guilt. Or for middle childhood, is um, industry versus inferiority, competence and method. But you know, at certain point, you realize that, you know, now you need intimacy. Uh, now you need love and affiliation. Then you need care and production. And at certain point, you just have wisdom and reunification. So these are stages in a way, um, the way especially Erickson describes it, it seems like at certain stage, you sort of tend to, to have those personality attribution. It may, because it's interesting because anything abstract, it's a spectrum. You may be at the end of this spectrum or at the end of that, at the end of this spectrum and somewhere in the middle. But for example, the time that 
you, your personality, your identity is about love and affiliation, that seems like in that developmental growth period, uh, your attention goes there. But then, as you said, when we say 65 plus or older, as Erickson, when became older, created that due to his own experience, he realized that at certain age, the wisdom and the reunification kicks in. You know, you sort of seems like you have um, settled down. And I can't remember what other psychologists, uh, I don't know whether it was Celia or um, or um, someone else that as I was um, reading, it was about, you know, you get to a point in life that, oh, I, I know it was in industrial psychology regarding the choice of career. You get to establishment then you get to settlement and you get to a point that you're disengaged. And that may also change because if you're 65 plus and you're disengaged when it comes to career, uh, and maybe now that psychologist that I'm not sure, uh, I don't want to mention the name wrongly, but whoever it was, maybe with his own experience, he realizes that the age thing now has changed. Maybe 65 plus is not disengagement. Yeah, I think it's it's one of those things where it's very interesting to, you know, what goes into our our sense of self and even the idea like you're it seems like you're alluding to you know we can we can come back to these ideas too there may be a time where that's very focal for us but then also to a time where we find that that's something that uh, uh really is um something that we're wrestling with again and yeah definitely something i've seen within individuals as well uh we are getting to our first break uh I want to say something in Farsi. شنوندگان عزیز رادیو بامداد اگه تازه رادیاتون رو باز کردین صدای ما رو به زبان انگلیسی میشنوین ما روزهای شنبه و شنبه از رادیو بامداد به زبان انگلیسی مسائل روانشناسی رو دنبال میکنیم امروز من به همکارم دکتر اندرادی در خدمتون هستیم و در مورد هویت و چجوری هویت ما در طول زمان تغییر پیدا میکنه صحبت میکنیم اگر کسانی هستن در منزل که ممکن از برنامه ما استفاده کنم خواهش میکنم ازشون دعوت کنین روزای شنبه و شنبه از ساعت دوازده تا یکی بعد از ظهر با ما باشن برمیگردیم و دنباله صحبتمون رو ادامه میدیم
We're back with uh, Dr. Alexandradi, and this is uh, Saide Malik Absali speaking. Uh, so far, we've been talking about um, identity and the stages of development of identity. Uh, and Dr. Andrade, I wanted to talk about the cultural identity. So based on what I know, um, cultural identity is defined as individual, familial, ethnic, race, national, and if we are migrated to another place, um, so that, um, you know, is my case, is uh, migration identity as well. So combination of all of that creates cultural identity. What do you think? No, I totally agree. I think cultural identity is one of those things where I feel like it's it's one of those things we we just see the world in a certain way, especially when we're come from a family of, of a different culture. And it's until we kind of are faced with the, the dominant culture or, or the, the com the, the, not to say normal, but common culture in that way. And then we're having to kind of reconcile with some of the differences and the uniqueness of it. And a lot of times too, when it comes to cultural identity, uh, it's something that a lot of people maybe struggle with in, in, when they're first kind of coming to it, because at first it, it brings up just the difference that we have with the dominant culture. And for a lot of people, different doesn't feel good or feel comfortable. And so a lot of times, you know, we, it can be presented as a difficulty or a struggle or, or some kind of challenge. Um, that's definitely one of the things I've always said about growing up in California. Uh, I've been grateful for the fact of the extreme cultural diversity here that has allowed me to, um, kind of see culture as, as normal in that way, different cultures as normal. Um, you know, I grew up, I always say I grew up having friends who were African-American, Asian-American, um, you know, uh, it's just uh, every, you know, white, every racial, ethnic, and identity. And, and we didn't really think of it as, as, you know, strange in that way, or, you know, it was just like everybody was something. And then when I lived uh, in Chicago, uh, a, a city that's very diverse, um, but very segregated, I had a very kind of eye-opening experience that those, uh, that, you know, culture was as something not just acknowledged as, you know, just a part of who you are, but a, a lot of the negative connotations with different cultures or different races as well. And so, yeah, it's one of those things where I think culture can be a very sensitive issue for a lot of individuals because of, again, some of the, the challenges they've had in their life and understanding their own culture and kind of coming to terms with what that meant compared to the dominant culture. Yeah. And um, for me, um, the first interaction with complete different culture was when I came to United States uh, as a high school student. And where I was uh, in Texas, the only different cultures besides I was the only person um, from other parts of the country, not living in the United States, um, but um, there were just very, very few, maybe just a couple black, and the rest were white and um, Mexican-American. And it was very interesting. They were uh, purely, I would say, half Mexican-American and the other half white, just a couple of blacks and myself. And it was the beginning of noticing all these differences and the difference between the cultures, difference between, um, 
you know, practices of the culture. So um, it was uh, interesting. And as you said, the eye opening actually that time happened to me. Um, I, I know we go through different stages of cultural shock and then um, acceptance and all that. That's also another story. But I remember at first when I was living with American family and I was just following every aspect of uh, living, they were practicing. I was part of that and I was doing it. And I realized that how much um, we are similar and how much we are different. It was very interesting. At one part, when you really look at similarities, you realize, oh, we do this the same. We do that the same. But then on the other hand, all of a sudden you see, wow, there's so many differences as well. And it was just that time that I was becoming a true observant because I just wanted to know how this is done in that culture. Or then I had many, uh, most of my friends were Mexican-American friends. And um, when I went to their homes, I realized that how much their practices is different and how much... And it was really interesting to be living with a pure white family and then associating a lot uh, with my friends that they were Spanish-speaking um, people. And I felt so close to them because I felt that so much of our practices are more similar to them. And I was attracted so much to the way of life, uh, the warmth, you know, the family togetherness, the parties they had. Um, and I felt more I can be part of that. And most of my friends that I still are um, part of my friends and we communicate with are from that group of friends. So it was very interesting. And in at some points, a lot of challenges, you know, but then you have to be so adaptive, so, um, you know, um, basically um, adjustable that soon you can adjust yourself. Even the time I was very young, but still I could see that there were times that was difficult. And I know we've talked a little bit about the uh, cultural models or the racial identity models. And it's something that um, I've talked briefly before about, uh, not on the radio show, but just in general in regards to, this is something that uh, I even use sometimes we use in therapy with individuals to kind of help them understand the different process or stages of understanding and coming to term with one's own racial identity and their own racial views. I find a lot of times that um, like, for example, the cross model, which is a very common model related to uh, racial identity, uh, particularly for African-Americans, uh, there's the uh, first stage, the pre-encounter stage, which is uh, kind of described as race and racial identity having low salience or, uh, um, you know, not being kind of at the, at the forefront in that way. And so it's until uh, the next stage, the encounter that we've been exposed to uh, the, the dominant uh, uh, racial culture that we start to become more aware. And I think it starts with that idea of what are those differences? And again, as I mentioned a moment ago, I think when we think of differences, uh, our mind tends to be very um, uh, dichotomous and we think of like good and bad and right or wrong. And I think it's, and it's historically one of the, the difficult and, and, and tragic things about African-American um, kind of the messages about African-Americans is that even like skin color and skin tone, like dark and black is bad or wrong and white is right or good. And so, I mean, these are things that get assimilated into 
our view of ourselves sometimes as we're, you know, growing up in a culture, as we're growing up in a society. And it's um, even in the Mexican culture, for example, um, you know, I'm, I'm, pretty, you know, light complected. I'm a little darker right now because of my recent vacation and a lot of uh, being in the sun. Um, but yeah, when I'm, I, I like to be darker. I, I enjoy the, the the darkness of my skin because it's just a part of who I am. That's how I've come to see it over the years. But I know sometimes culturally it's viewed as like negative and, and there are even terms, <laughs> excuse me, there are even terms that uh, kind of say that in a in a negative connotation. And so those things get into our mind about our even things such as our skin tone, uh, even within one's own culture. And so, yeah, it can definitely be difficult to, to kind of develop a, a positive and a healthy image of our identity when we're first countered with something that's viewed as maybe negative or less than, um, especially when, and this happens too, a lot of times this happens when we're also uh, forming our development uh, and our identity of us as a person. Like you mentioned, for example, you know, you're in high school and in, in high school, we're figuring out who we are as a person. You know, our brain is still developing. You know, we don't have a full sense of this is who I am. So I always point that out because not only are we trying to find out who we are as a person, but then we're also wrestling with these other levels of who we are, both within our, our race, our ethnicity, our culture, uh, and society, and our career, uh, relationship-wise, all of those things. And so we have multiple balls that we're juggling at once that can be very, uh, um, what's a, we're not damaging, but can be very impactful uh, throughout the rest of our life as well, or at least for uh, you know, a, a large part of our life. Absolutely. Well, especially since, uh, you know, our identity basically relates either to um, the individual, to social situations, um, you know, shape cognition and um, sort of range of goals and motives that we have. So when you're facing with another culture, basically you put your own individual and social life or social um, situations on the uh, spot and you realize that, you know, there are um, differences there. But you mentioned uh, Black identity, racial identity by Chris. Uh, I know at the very end when, uh, you know, a person goes through pre-encounter, encounter, immersion, immersion, uh, it's uh, internalization. And there's a, there's a phrase that says, and then the, uh, it's um, healthy cultural paranoia. So what does that mean, having healthy cultural paranoia? It's in cross-model. Um, yeah, I always think of healthy, uh, can you say the term one more time, healthy? Healthy cultural paranoia. Yeah, I always think of it as we have to be aware of racism and discrimination and mistreatment are out there. And I, and I think this is what something I talk with individuals about too in treatment, where knowing that there's that risk, but then also saying, and how do I want to go about that? Knowing my experiences, what I've encountered, and how I want to be in the world. And it's not easy. As a, as a Mexican-American male, I know that there are certain ways that I can be viewed before I even open my mouth. Um, I, I can be seen, I'm, I'm, as I've talked about on the show before, I'm bald-headed. And, you know, I can be seen as, uh, you know, if I say I have my sunglasses on and I'm bald-headed and I'm, you know, 
looking, you know, people can say I'm looking aggressive or I'm looking mean. So I know I can be maybe viewed uh, by somebody who is just, you know, adhering to stereotypes. I can be like some kind of gangbanger or some kind of troublemaker or something like that, or somebody who's mean. I've even had people too. It's funny. I had a colleague who I became great friends with uh, after I was uh, hired. Um, he told me, I remember when you were walking down the halls and um, at one point I must've been looking very serious, very stern. And he goes, why did they hire this scary looking Mexican guy? And I was like, what? And I was like, anybody who knows me knows I'm laughing and I'm joking all the time. So the last thing I ever get called is scary looking a lot of times. And so, but I know if, you know, I'm somewhere that people don't know me and, you know, I have my sunglasses on or something and I'm not looking, you know, maybe happy in that moment, or I'm looking very serious, I can be, uh, you know, viewed in a certain way. And so again, I, I have to carry that with me as I function, as I go through the world, but at the same time, I have to be aware that that is not all that I am. And so I, I don't want to respond in that way where people come up to me and maybe are maybe a little apprehensive. I could be like, okay, I know that's there, but also how am I? And so it's finding that balance, I think, of that healthy paranoia, but it doesn't intrude in our lives and start to dictate what those interactions are, what they feel like. How, how do you view that, uh, that term, that definition? Um, I actually was just thinking because race continues to be part of the conversation at that point, and um, you have gone through all those three stages, you're at a point that you realize that your culture is different than the dominant culture. You understand at that point that, um, you know, you, uh, you strongly uh, notice the differences and this is who you are. But then on the other hand, um, you know that you're at a stage that you want to integrate, integrate. You want to be more wise and you want to actually uh, embrace other identity, other cultures, other races. But as you mentioned, you also, you can't deny that cultural paranoia. You can't deny that there are other people out there that also um, don't accept you, you know, or, or you are aware that there are other people who have a different perception of you when it comes to their mind. And you know, there are other people out there that they're not actually gone through the stages to become aware that we all are, you know, human being. We all have, um, we all have encompasses personal qualities and beliefs that make our, uh, as a person we are, that we are different from another person. But then they, we, we need to know that they look at culture or look at identity differently. So we still have that paranoia within us. We can't deny that, that we know there are people out there that maybe um, just without any education about us, without any knowledge about us, they have that feeling of being against. So you realize that although you're integrating, although you really embrace the cultural identity of others and yourself, you know, but still you, you don't want to kid yourself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I see it. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it reminds me too. one other point I just wanted to share reminds me of the idea too. We, we want to be aware of the risk that happened in the world, but we don't want to live in fear too. And so I think it can be a healthy kind of cultural paranoia in that way of knowing that that risk is there, but then not always just being defensive or just assuming that those things are happening, but then also knowing how to protect ourselves when those things occur. And, and that may mean retreating from that situation. That might mean making a comment. Um, I, I think, you know, it doesn't always mean we have to, fight or be angry or be hurt necessarily, it may still feel some of those ways, but to keep ourselves safe in those situations and engaging the situation is, you know, possibly a learning opportunity for another individual, or you know what, just something I need to remove myself from. And I'm, I'm not needing to take this all on uh, for myself can be kind of where we end up kind of find herself. Right. You know, I've been in situations where somebody had asked me, do you still ride camel in the streets? You know what I mean? It's oh, like, wow. no, seriously. And then my response was, do you still ride horses in the street? You know, <laughs> seriously, it's about the same. But I yeah. mean, you run into situations where you face with people that either they want to put you down yeah. or if they're so ignorant or they want to be funny. I mean, you really sometimes wonder, what was that? Yeah. But rather than being reactive, you always try to be acting um, properly. Uh, and if you feel like they're joking, you can joke too. Like, like my response was um, actually sort of the same, but honestly, I wasn't uh, deeply aware of what's going on at the time that I responded, yeah. but I took it as a joke mm -hmm. and I immediately responded uh, as a joke. But then I thought, what was the motive of that question? I mean, was not, it wasn't related to anything. So well, I'm trying to say that when we talk about healthy cultural paranoia, uh, just be aware that there's still people out there that they're not aware of cultural differences. They're not aware of, you know, the healthy, understanding the healthy uh, differences, you know. So uh, we are at our second break um, and uh, we are going to come back to continue our conversation. Shanwandigan Azizah Radio Bamdad. اگر تازه رادیوتون رو باز کردین من و همکارم دکتر اندرادی در مورد هویت و اینکه هویت ما به چه صورت شکل میگیره و بعدها چطوری تغییر میکنه در سنهای مختلف صحبت میکنیم ما روزهای شنبه و شنبه از ساعت 12 تا یک بعد از ظهر در رادیو بامداد به زبان انگلیسی راجع به مسائل مختلف روز و مسائل مختلف فرهنگی و آموزشی و روانشناسی صحبت میکنیم امیدواریم اگر برنامه ما مورد پسندتون هست به کسانی که علاقمند هستند به زبان انگلیسی برنامه های روانشناسی رو گوش بدن ازشون دعوت کنین روزهای شنبه و شنبه از ساعت 12 تا یک بعدظهر به برنامه ما توجه کنن برمیگردیم و ادامه صحبتمون رو میدیم
with Dr. Andrade, and we are continuing our conversation regarding the identity, and we started with self-identity, then cultural identity, ethnic identity, group identity, women's identity, all of that uh, actually is based of who we are. So when we start with Erickson um, psychological development, we go through the stages of growth and at each point our needs is different and our growth is different. We get to a point that wisdom conscientious comes in and it's that time that we look at everything differently. We are more integrated, we look at culture, we look at ethnicity, we look at race differently. And at each stage of life and each development stage of identity, but whether it's cultural, ethnicity, we, um, un our understanding is different, our level of where we are is different, and we are constantly growing into self-identity, into cultural identity. And there's so many psychologists who have done researches after researches regarding each part of the identity. And today, uh, we started in our first two sessions, if you uh, opened your radio just recently, uh, to just bring you up to date, we talked about self-identity, how identity actually uh, presents itself, how it, compass it en encompasses other qualities, parts of us, and then how we grow into cultural and uh, into racial identity. So Dr. Andrade, I, you started with um, actually cross identity model where uh, the race goes through, that's the black identity model, goes through pre-encounter, encounter, immersion, immersion, and internalization. And we talked um, sort of um, briefly about the healthy cultural paranoia. Um, I, I'm sure you're familiar also with white racial identity. Uh, Helms actually is the person who is known for the white racial identity. And I know that part um, has six stages rather than the four stages of, uh, explained by Cross. In that, there are some similarities when we grow into the white culture. And at the end, the autonomy is also internalization. And I realize in every research with different uh, racial or cultural identity and even uh, in homosexual identity, at the very end of stage, you are um, into autonomy, internalization, commitment, integration. So it seems like this is the pace. And isn't that great too? Isn't that great? I, I think that's one of the nice things about the models, but one of the, the things that maybe is not so realistic, that we get to this place, we arrive where we're fully integrated and we're understanding, we're accepting. And I, and, I, and I don't mean to take anything away from that. I mean, I think if that were true, we wouldn't have a lot of these issues that we do in the world today. So I just pointed out is it's, I, I look at it as, as the ideal of where we want to get to through our racial identi identity. But I find we end up circling back a lot of times to some of these issues too, and different things can bring us back into those uh, places where we're kind of questioning our, our race or identity and how that plays into the dominant culture and how that's viewed maybe harshly or negatively. So yeah, I, I, I do, I do like that those things get to that point. Uh, but yeah, I think it's one of those things where that's, that's, although we're striving for that, that may not be the reality. And I say that 
so that people don't feel as though they're, they're, there's a problem with them because they're continuing to struggle with it to some degree or, <coughs> excuse me, they find some difficulty in, in really kind of, you know, being aware of their own kind of racial viewers or their racial identity as well. Yeah, and then the, the source of the pride um, of the identity, whether it's self-identity, whether it's ethnic identity, it's so important in life that um, brings your self-esteem up to a point that you um, appreciate who you are, you appreciate your culture, you appreciate your ethnicity. And basically, psychologists always recommend uh, to... Um, actually try to understand um, there are differences and be proud of who you are. And I think that goes on to every aspect of life. If we don't compare ourselves and just look at our own capacity, look at our own uh, personal identity, cultural identity, accept who you are and be proud of it. You know, and the part that can make you different from the other person, it could be your goals, your achievements, your life that you create for yourself, uh, the friends you have, the social life. I mean, all of that bigger scope of life that you have created around you, that makes you who you are. You can't just point at one thing and compare yourself. And I think I always, uh, when I was... Uh, Work, I mean, I've worked with people, I always say, whether it's educational, psychological, cultural, I always say, look at each aspect of life as a slice in a pie chart. You know, we are combination of so many things. You can't just focus on one thing and know yourself as that. You know, yes, I'm Iranian American uh, woman, uh, yes, I am a professional. Yes, I am this and that. But these are all piece of the whole that I am. So I want to invite our listeners to anytime that they're focusing on one thing, you know, just realize that there's so many aspects of you that makes you a person you are and be proud of it and have, um, you know, high self-esteem. Uh, try to understand that. We are different. We are not the same. I remember I had a patient a couple of years ago who came to me and who was so unhappy and unsatisfied about, you know, where she was in life. And she was just complaining that I could have done that. I could have done this. And I remember at that time, she was into such a stress and such negativity that she was crying the whole time and says, I want to be where you are. I want to be where so-and-so is. And I was just telling her, she is so perfect where she is. Why is she comparing herself? It's good to compare when you have goals to reach to that. But then if it's all negative and you're not doing anything about it, you're bringing yourself down. So I want our listeners to really uh, stay with this um, you know, word that, uh, wherever we are, we are at a good place. And then from there, we can move on. Yeah, along those lines, I find it's a, 
it's a natural tendency for us to compare and contrast ourselves. But uh, yeah, we want to make sure that we're not doing it at the cost of ourselves. Like you're saying that we're not just beating ourselves up and that we're being overly harsh, overly critical. We're going to question things. We're going to wonder. That's just part of kind of who we are and how we are. But I think it's knowing when we do that to a degree that just kind of takes away from us. There are things that are unique and special about us that no one else has or no nobody else that we know has in that way. And, and so to give that weight, to give that volume and, and to give that space, <coughs> excuse me, for ourselves and for others is so important. And definitely I, I always look at it as a skill. It's not something that we maybe are good at or do automatically but it isn't, doesn't mean that it can't be something that we practice at or something that we learn and grow at. Yeah, it's just, um, you know, like staying in that marginalization part of growth, which seems like, you know, you perceive your culture or yourself as something negative, you know. So um, just being positive and looking at what we have rather than what we don't have is always that goes to self-identity, that goes to cultural identity, ethnic culture, ethnic identity. Um, you know, just looking at what we have rather than what we don't have. And then especially, um, you know, I always feel like we are in a very, very good place. I actually appreciate that we have experienced different cultures. Uh, if we just minimum, we have experienced two cultures for sure if not more. But even if you stay with that two cultures that we have experienced, our own and the culture of dominant culture, um, we have the best of the world because we can pick the best of ours and then add the best of the dominant culture and try to practice. If you like it, that's wonderful. If we want to get rid of some of the uh, cultures in, within our own uh, original culture that we don't like, we have the opportunity to let go of it. You know, we are in a good place. Yeah, we don't have to practice things that don't we don't adhere to, or we don't uh, feel as though they're 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 true for us in that way too. So, yeah, a, a common example of that that I, I can think of off the top of my head is I, I grew up with the mentality, or at least in my family, you know, culturally, it's like the women serve the men like food, but. I've always been taught, my mom was always like, no, like I'll serve you your first plate, but you serve yourself. Or sometimes she's had to work. So it was like, yeah, we serve ourselves. So like, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't, uh, and I've met some men like this. It's shocking to me. They wait to be served. Like they won't serve themselves. Uh, I've met men who don't know how to do laundry, who don't know how to, you know, do dishes and things like that. And to me, that's like baffling. It's like, you know, how do you not know how to do that? And it's a combination, I think of, my mom being, you know, kind of the the, the dominant culture, uh, but then also the Latino culture too. So, you know, there are times where she'll cook and serve me and clean and things like that. There's times where she's like, you need to get up off your butt and do it yourself kind of thing. So uh, yeah, it's a good balance in that way. And I think it's added a lot in my life. Yeah, no, I totally agree because uh, similar to my culture, even um, for years, generation by generation, women always serve the men. Um, you know, it's a little different now, I think, uh, being in this culture and living in a different culture, it just brings some sort of balance. But I still see that, um, you know, when you said you specifically tell your mom that you want to um, actually serve her the food, 
um, I, that reminded me of my brother who always does that. And, and he always, um, you know, is advocate for women not staying in that sense and understanding that they're the ones who serve. They're the ones who sit in the back of the car um, because every time, you know, you are with, um, when we go back home, it's more so you see the dominancy of men more into that culture. But when we are here, uh, you see more balance. Uh, and of course, some carry that culture with uh, within their families here too. But specifically my brother, anytime we go somewhere, he definitely sits in the back of the car and let a woman sit in front. And uh, he's very specific when it comes to that and always likes to serve. You know, when he comes here, he just uh, rolls up his sleeves, go to the kitchen, start doing things. And just like, you know, we do as women, we go to help. He does the same. And he always wants us also to understand that there's no difference. You don't have to serve me. I serve you. So that reminded me uh, of him when you said that. Yeah, that's great. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So um, basically, um, when we talk about different uh, stages of cultural identity, uh, I don't want to miss uh, homosexual identity as well, because that's also important to know that they go through stages also, and they get to a point that they are, um, you know, assuming that they become, the, the assumption is that they're more certain of their homosexuality and um, realization in a variety of ways. But then they also get to a point that they have completely adopted homosexual culture. But as you said, it is really interesting. This is uh, sort of generalization and you still see a lot of homosexual people who are not ready to get to that um, level to accept. Um, and when you completely accept, you share uh, and they're still afraid of uh, showing up and we know what they go through culturally um, and, and uh, also the rate of suicide, how much is higher in that culture. So it's really um, a point that I like to make. And that is, um, you know, it's a wish thing. You can change people. But I always uh, feel like if we could just understand that, for example, homosexuality is not something you acquire or you adopt, you're born with it. It's just like you're right-handed, you're left-handed. Just invite people to understand that. And um, also, even if there's any homosexual person listening to us, just understand that wherever you are, you're at a good point and never feel that there's anything negative about you. We have to just get to education level that we understand everybody, whether white, black, homosexual, um, you know, at whatever stage of um, cultural identity we are. We are human beings with differences, and we need just to learn to not to be judgmental and be appreciative of not only who we are, but appreciate of what we see around us and who other people are. And just understanding the level of the other people's understanding and try to have a conversation. 
because I know a lot of times I have been in situations that I have to talk to people regarding, you know, for example, homosexuality, because there are still people out there that they don't believe this is something we are born with. There are still people out there that they believe, you know, uh, you know, cultures are different, which is true, but they have to be treated differently. So we know the mindset of our people are not at the same level. Yeah, no, very well said. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, because it's something I've worked with individuals uh, identify as gay and lesbian who really are struggling with, you know, bringing their full selves to different spheres of their life. And so they may have, you know, been able to, to bring that out with their friend group or maybe at work, but then not with their family. Um, and knowing that everybody's journey is different in that way. And yeah, to know that, you know, that's something that is, is unique to that individual. And so there's not always a time frame or a timeline. And I've seen people throughout throughout the the lifespan, you know, struggle with that. People who were gay or lesbian in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and still uh, kind of trying to make sense of, you know, how that relates to their family and how that relates to that, those relationships. Or even, you know, teenagers, you know, starting to find their voice and find their identity in multiple areas of their life. And so everybody's journey is different. And, and yeah, definitely glad you recognized and definitely glad you, you stated that for our listeners as well. Of course. Yes, and um, also just uh, remind ourselves always that anything that we want to do at any point in life, regardless of our age, regardless of our race, regardless of our, our culture, we can always accomplish as long as there's a strong will and there's a strong um, motivation to get to. So don't let any of these other obstacles to uh, be on your way um, and um, not allow you to go through the process of getting to your goals and getting to where you want to be. Because as we have seen and we have experienced, they're, they're super um, wonderful, uh, motivated, accomplished people from all sort of cultures. So prove who you are by doing what you want to do, by reach to the point you want to be, and don't let any of those things to create obstacles on your way. I know with that, we got to come to the end of our show. And so one of the things that um, I wanted to invite us both to say something to our listeners today. And uh, one of the things that I want to leave listeners with this idea is just this question, you know, how am I growing today? with the emphasis on that part, I, how am I growing my identity, who I am, how I view myself, how am I growing today? And I think a lot of times we can do just one small thing for ourselves to kind of encourage and support that growth and who we are and how we see ourselves. And I think it's something that is so important to kind of keep at the forefront of our mind. Life happens so quickly. Sometimes it's, it's days, weeks go by and we feel like we haven't done anything for us or we haven't really taken the time to, to, to kind of grow and to give to ourselves. So think of that as something that you're trying to focus on, on a daily, uh, in a daily habit, in a daily routine. So today, what would you want to leave our listeners with today? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I want to reiterate what you said and also add that, um, you know, it's important to accept who we are and be adopted to where we want to go because, um, you know, where we want to go probably needs some sort of processes we have to go through. 
just being flexible and being adaptable can help us reach where we want to be. And um, again, I want to say, uh, just be happy where you are, and you can always move on to where you want to be. With that, I want to thank Dr. Andrade, even though he wasn't feeling good. Yeah, but- sorry for the coughing too. I tried to keep it to a minimum. No, I really appreciate it. Uh, You made it to this show and I want to thank you and thank our listeners. We come back next week to continue our conversation about uh, different topics. So with that, I want to wish our listeners a wonderful week ahead. رادیو بامداد صدای ما و شما با زبانی آشنا